Hello. Good morning. There we go. Um, yeah, great to be back with you this morning. Um, I was fortunate enough to, to get away for Friday night to my wife Fiona, her, her family's property, their farm, which has a very quaint but very dusty little farmhouse that had recently had a cat in it. And so being allergic to dust and cats, if it sounds like there's a cat in my throat this morning, there, there is. Um, so I apologize if I, if I stop to take a drink of water or whatever, that's, uh, that's why. Um, but yeah, it's a pleasure to be back this morning looking into our final Sunday of this, this series, um, A People Prepared for the Lord. And we get to look at, at two uh, minor characters in the book of Luke, in the figures of Anna and Simeon. And so with that, I actually, I want us to dig right into our text this morning, starting in Luke 2, verse 22. Um, and this is just after Jesus had been born, probably about maybe six weeks later for that context. So let's read together. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him, to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Father God, would you be with us this morning? Um, Would you help us to be inspired to be prepared as Anna and Simeon were prepared for your coming. Would you inspire us to be faithful, to love your word, to seek your Holy Spirit, and to um, seek you in discipline. And we ask that your presence is with us this morning to open our eyes to all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think in our text, the first thing the first thing that ought to stand out to us or the first thing that we ought to grapple with is that Anna and Simeon are actually pretty exceptional figures in the Gospels, right? The clarity with which they perceive who the infant Jesus is and who he is going to become, that they so quickly realize that Jesus is the Messiah, 
is exceptional in scripture, right? Anna and Simeon are, are profound models of faithfulness. And this is especially true uh, if we've already read the book of Mark, if we've already read others of the Gospels. Uh, but Mark in particular is written almost like a detective story. Um, so you jump in in Mark and you see Jesus doing all these things. You see Jesus healing the sick and casting out demons and teaching in the temple. All these little clues to who Jesus might be. And there were theories going around um, about, you know, who is this Jesus guy? And, and even his disciples and his family, they don't really get it all the time. At one point it says his family thought he was out of his mind. They didn't know who Jesus was. And then halfway through the book of Mark, well into Jesus' ministry, we get this scene that says this. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And there's this climactic moment in the book of Mark where someone finally sees Jesus as the Messiah, finally recognizes Jesus as the Christ. So when we turn back to our passage in Luke, just in the early chapters of Luke, realizing that it took probably years of watching Jesus do all the things that he was doing for his disciples to confidently say, you're the guy, you're the Messiah, you're the one we're waiting for. We ought to be shocked by the wisdom and the discernment and the insight of Anna and Simeon. And I think also in reading this story, our hearts ought to burn a little bit. We ought to be asking ourselves, how do we become like Anna and Simeon? How do we become prepared as they were prepared to recognize and to testify to who Jesus was? Right? How do we, like Simeon, bind our life's purpose to knowing Jesus? How do we wait with the depth of expectation that Anna and Simeon waited with? Right? We know from scripture that Jesus is coming again. Will he find us ready and waiting as he found Anna and Simeon ready and waiting? Even do we not want the depth of faith and the deep assurance of salvation that Simeon expresses when he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Right? I think Anna and Simeon are profound models of faithfulness. And so recognizing that, I think our sort of guiding question this week is what hints does our text give about the source of their faithfulness, right? And I think we can see three pretty clear answers in our text. First is a deep knowledge of scripture and a deeply biblical worldview. The second is a daily relationship with the Holy Spirit. And the third is a pursuit of God in spiritual discipline, even through suffering. So those are our three points. That's where we're, that's where we're going today. starting with a deep knowledge of scripture. What we see, particularly when we look at the figure of Simeon, is that his whole worldview, his whole, his whole understanding of life 
of his life personally and his, uh, his, the lens through which he viewed the, the public world or the political world was wrapped up in God's word, was wrapped up in God's word and in the promises of God. I think in particular, we can see that Simeon was, in our terms, maybe an expert on the book of Isaiah, right? Verse 25 of our text says this. It says, Zechariah was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Right? What was the consolation of Israel? Consolation in Greek is almost literally to come alongside or to, to solace or to comfort, it, it's often translated. And it comes from, actually, a prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. They say this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And what we see in the whole of Isaiah, but particularly in chapters 40 to 66, the, the second two sections or the second section of Isaiah, as we discussed last week, is this anticipation or this expectation of a return from exile. And the term that's often used for that return from exile is the consolation or the comfort of Israel by the Messiah, by the Holy One or the Anointed One. Right? And so the whole, the, the expectation that Simeon carried in was informed, deeply informed, um, by Scripture and by the book of Isaiah specifically. And then beyond that, just quickly, just briefly, I want us to, to, to excuse me, I want us to see that both of the blessings that Simeon gives are the fulfillment of prophecies in the book of Isaiah. Right, in this first blessing, this first word that he speaks, he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. I think we can understand that this is a pretty direct fulfillment of Isaiah 49.6, which pictures the Messiah as a light to the nation. It says this, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Right? So, his general expectation is informed by the book of Isaiah, and then his specific word is informed by Isaiah 49.6. Just quickly, the second blessing that Simeon gives, spoken specifically to Mary, says this, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now this, this prophecy of this word that Simeon gives in this second blessing to Mary is notoriously cryptic. It's notorious a little bit difficult. If you read the scholars or the commentators on this one, they're going to give you a few different answers. But outside of those, those controversies or questions, I think it's fairly clear that we can see two things. We can see the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 8. And we'll look into that. So, in the prophecy that a sword will pierce Mary's heart, I think we're meant to understand a reference to the crucifixion. 
we know actually from the book of John that Mary was present at the crucifixion. Um, I think Simeon, informed by the book of Isaiah, understood that Jesus was the Messiah, but he also knows that the Messiah was going to need to suffer, right? And he warns Mary of that suffering. This is what it says in Isaiah 53, this anointed servant, this, con- this one that was to console Israel. It says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Right? So Simeon didn't just see Jesus as the Messiah. He understood something of what the Messiah was going to need to do, that he was going to need to suffer in order to redeem the world. And he predicts that. He warns Mary of that. So that's, that's the first piece of fulfillment in the second blessing. I know this is a lot up front, but I think it's important for us to see these, these references. The second is a prophecy from Isaiah 8, particularly 8.14. And this is a part of Isaiah that's prophesying of the time of Emmanuel. It says this, The Lord of hosts will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Right? Where Simeon says that Jesus, the Messiah, was going to be, um, was going to cause the rise and fall of many, I think we're meant to understand this, uh, that as a fulfillment of Isaiah 8. So from the book of Isaiah, Simeon knew that Israel was going to be divided and that Jesus, the Messiah, was going to be that polarizing factor. And so he combines the prophecy of Jesus as the stone of offense or the sign that is opposed with a prophecy of Jesus as the suffering servant. Here's the, this, is where we're, this is where we're getting to. I think that we can understand that Simeon is saying, ultimately, how people respond to the cross of Jesus is telling of whether they rise or fall. And I know that was, that was a lot quickly, but in this second blessing, I think we're meant to see the fulfillment of 53, Jesus as the suffering servant, and Jesus as the stumbling block. And there's something really profound. It's a really rich text in that way. That's a lot, I know. I think ultimately, in the story of Simeon, Luke is saying to the Jewish people, if you really knew the law, if you really understood Isaiah and the scriptures, you would know that it's all about this little child. It's all about what he, the Holy One, the Messiah of God, was going to accomplish in his life and through his suffering. So our first point, Simeon knows Isaiah, Simeon knows the scriptures, and that knowledge gives him incredible insight into who Jesus is and what he was going to accomplish. I know that was a lot of texts quickly um, and some complex or even cryptic prophecies from Simeon, but I think that what we ought to walk away with is that Simeon is deeply informed by scripture in his expectations for his own life and for the world around him. Our second point, Simeon was walking with the Holy Spirit. I want to read our passage again, starting at verse 25, just quickly. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, 
And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. So three times, in just three verses, it was said that Simeon had the Holy Spirit. We see that Simeon has a deep relationship with the Holy Spirit. And I think we can see that Simeon's relationship with the Holy Spirit empowers his recognition of Jesus. Right? And I, I, I want to note that when the Holy Spirit comes up in modern evangelical <coughs> excuse me, churches, there's lots of connotations or questions or maybe even controversies that, that come into people's minds. And today's message is not about those things. But it is, I hope, a reminder that the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential in the life of the individual Christian and in the life of the church. I think when, when the Holy Spirit comes up, it's easy to be distracted by the controversies and then to end up neglecting what is the agreed-upon center, the agreed-upon things that are crucial to the Christian life about the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as our helper and our teacher and the source of our power both personally to turn from sin and as the power of the church to testify who, to who Jesus is. It's absolutely essential to our, our lives as Christians. There's a really great book by Francis Chan called Forgotten God, and it's precisely about this tendency that, that we have in evangelical churches to, to neglect the Holy Spirit. And he gives a, a little anecdote that I think is um, maybe a little bit cliche, but also, also poignant and has a strong point. So I, wanna, I wanted to read that this morning. Francis Chan said this. Years ago, when a random thought came into my head, I decided to share it with my wife. Have you ever wondered what caterpillars think about, I asked. Not surprisingly, she said no. I then proceeded to tell her about the confusion I imagined a caterpillar must experience. For all its caterpillar life, it crawls around on a small patch of dirt and up and down a few plants. Then one day it takes a nap, a long nap, and then, what in the world must go through its head when it wakes up to discover it can fly? What happened to its dirty, plump little worm body? What does it think when it sees its tiny new body and gorgeous wings? As believers, we ought to experience this same kind of astonishment when the Holy Spirit enters our bodies. We should be stunned in disbelief over becoming a new creation with the Spirit living in us. As the caterpillar finds its new ability to fly, we should be thrilled over our spirit-empowered ability to live differently and faithfully. Isn't this what the scriptures speak of? Isn't this what we've all been longing for? Isn't this what the scriptures speak of? Isn't this what we've all been longing for? Right? I think in Simeon, we have a profound model of that spirit-filled life. If we strive for faith, for Simeon's faithfulness and wisdom, if we long to experience the abundant life promised to us in Scripture, then we ought to strive to be in deep and daily relationship with the Holy Spirit. So that's our second point. If we're going to be prepared for Jesus, we need 
a deeply biblical worldview to be soaked in the scriptures. And we need the Holy Spirit, a daily relationship with the Holy Spirit. Uh, no, I won't worry about that. <laughs> um, our third point, turning from the character of Simeon to the character of Anna. There's a, a little summary given of Anna's life. It says, Anna was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. And we can understand from that that Anna was probably a widow living on her own for 60 years. And to be a widow in ancient culture, particularly an ancient culture influenced by Roman law, meant that she couldn't own her own property, and she was probably probably destitute for those 60 years, right? That when her husband died, she was robbed of a full life, and with no family to take her in, she was a victim of political injustice for 60 years, right? We see just in this little snippet that Anna's life was substantially a life of suffering. But even through that suffering, in verse 37, it says, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Right? In spite of her sufferings, or maybe even because of her sufferings, she was pushed to wait diligently for God. In spite of her sufferings, or even because of her sufferings, she was pushed to wait diligently for God, for Jesus' coming. And the world around us is full of injustice and brokenness, and our own lives are full of injustice and brokenness. And we can allow that to make us bitter and to make us feel like victims, or we can turn that brokenness into a longing and an expectation for Jesus as Anna does. I want to read that one more time. The world around us is full of injustice and brokenness, and our lives are full of injustice and brokenness, and we can allow that to make us bitter and to feel like victims, or we can turn that brokenness into longing and expectation for Jesus, as Anna does. I had a prof back at Tyndale when I was studying theology, and he defined spiritual discipline in a way that was, I thought, simple and really helpful. He said that spiritual discipline is just giving up things of the world for things of God. Right? Giving up things of the world for things of God. To receive a knowledge of God's grace in our hearts and to receive God's spirit. Turning from material wealth for the sake of spiritual wealth. And I think this is especially important, an especially important culture or topic in our culture and in our age as an age of prosperity, right? We live in an age of what, what we might call decadence or spiritually dangerous physical prosperity. We live in a decadent age in which our physical comforts can blind us to our spiritual needs and therefore, we need spiritual discipline that much more. Right? We live in a decadent age in which our physical comforts can blind us to our spiritual needs. And so we need spiritual discipline that much more. We desperately need to pursue God in prayer, 
in worship and studying God's word and giving God our time and attention. Timothy Keller, pastor in the States, said, if you don't desire to deposit God's grace in your heart more than you desire to deposit money in your bank account, you're a fool. We desperately need to turn from the material to the spiritual in spiritual discipline. Right? Even in fasting, I think fasting is a missing piece in a lot of Christian lives today. In saying to God, I desire your grace in my heart more than food in my stomach today. Right? So spiritual discipline as giving up the things of the world to receive the things of God. And Anna demonstrates that so beautifully. Recap. If we are to be found faithful and waiting, prepared for the Lord as Anna and Simeon are, I think we need to pursue a deep knowledge of Scripture that is a profoundly biblical worldview. We need to be informed by the Bible. We need a deep relationship with the Holy Spirit. And we need spiritual discipline. We need to turn away from material decadence and worldly riches. And as true as those things are, and, and as important as they are, I want to conclude this morning recognizing that I think that that could sound like an empty encouragement, right? It could sound like I'm saying that the source of Anna or Simeon's devotion was that they were devout. Does that make sense, right? It could sound empty. It could sound like a tautology. It could sound like I'm saying, in order to be faithful, we'll just go and be more faithful, right? Or in order to be disciplined, just be more disciplined. In order to be wise and filled with the Holy Spirit, be wise and filled with the Holy Spirit, right? It could sound empty in that way, right? You might, you might ask, well, if the thing I'm struggling with in Christian life is faith and discipline, how is faith and discipline the answer? It's a complex question. In John 14, verses 15 and 16, it says this, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, the Spirit, to be with you forever. Right? And there's, there's a paradox, a difficulty, a question in, in realizing, like, how can receiving the Spirit be both the source of our strength to walk obediently and only given when we are obedient? There's a difficulty there. There's an abstract question or a paradox there. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his classic work, The Cost of Discipleship, describes, the, describes it this way. Two propositions hold good and are equally true. Only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. Two propositions hold good and are equally true. Only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. And so I think sometimes we hear a message like this one. We hear that we're supposed to to read the Bible and be filled with the Holy Spirit and to pursue spiritual discipline, and those things are all absolutely good and true, but we can be left feeling stuck. We can be left feeling stuck in our walk with God, asking these questions of what is my part and what is supposed to be God's power in my life.
And if that resonates with you, if you feel like that's you, first I would encourage you to pick up a copy of The Cost of Discipleship, because I think it's a beautiful, biblically-filled theology, even just the first chapter. And second, I would say, don't get caught in the abstract. And don't discount God's call for you to be obedient and to pursue him in all circumstances. I'll read one, one more Bonhoeffer quote that I think is helpful. I think it may be able to come up. If, yeah, awesome. Where moral difficulties, right, these abstract questions or paradoxes, are taken so seriously when they torment and enslave man because they do not leave him open to the freeing activity obedience. It is there that his total godlessness is revealed. The one thing that matters is practical obedience. That will solve all his different difficulties and make him and all of us free to become the child of God. Right. So if you're feeling stuck, don't ask yourself if you have faith enough or the spirit enough or discipline enough. Ask yourself if there's an act of practical obedience. Okay. <laughs> Ask yourself if there's an act of practical obedience that you can do before God this week. Maybe a closing question. Is there an act of practical obedience that you can give to God this week? Right? Is there... Can you fast for a day or for a meal? Can you commit to memorizing a verse of scripture or can you install a time limit app on your phone so that you spend more time in prayer? Yeah, let's close in prayer this morning. Well, Father God, thank you that you are with us and that you so deeply desire to shape us and to prepare us to receive you through your word, through your spirit, through discipline. So I pray that you would be with us this week through this Christmas season, that you would be preparing our hearts, that you would allow us to turn to you that we would remember that you came for us and respond in gratitude and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.